0: Hello and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high-growth business. Today's episode is with Hussein Kanji, partner at Hoxton Ventures. Hoxton Ventures is an early-stage technology venture capital firm investing in founders seeking to invent new market categories or transform large existing industries. They've backed notable companies such as Babylon, Deliveroo, Dark and Super Awesome, and many others. Great episode. He's a very experienced partner in the venture space, so there's some really interesting insights in here. Let's get started. Hi, Hussein. Welcome to Riding Unicorns. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with a broad question, which is, what's the best thing about the venture startup sector, in your opinion? I mean, it's a lot of fun. I mean,
1: you you've got you've got everything from like growth and success stories to soap operas to interesting people. There's never kind of a dull day whether it's a good moment or a bad moment. It's never dull. Uh it's always interesting.
2: How important do you think it is to have operational experience as a as an investor or, or if not important, what what do you get from it? It depends
1: on when you're investing in, in in the market. I think if you're doing early stage investing, I think it's super important to have some experience on the operational side. You know, if you're a finance person, you get trained to basically build these complicated Excel models, This kind of cash flow models is what, is what everyone knows. There's no DCF in early stage venture. Like that skill set is basically garbage in, garbage out. If like some startup can tell me like with certainty, even if like plus or minus 20% accuracy, what their revenues and what their profit and their free cash flow is going to look like in five years, like it's an entirely garbage and garbage out exercise. Like there is actually no point to doing this DCF model. And so all of your finance type training doesn't really make any difference whatsoever into the making of a company in, in the early days. The the stuff that happens in the early days is like can you build a team around the person and you build a product and you go build a sales organization to start taking the product out to market. And there are a lot of great guides on, like, metrics, like, for what should happen and what good metrics look like versus bad metrics. Like, you can go to David Sachs's website and look at some of the stuff that he's written. There's a whole bunch of literature. Andreessen has a bunch of literature. But there's the metrics, which is the outcome. But the metrics are the outcome. They're, They're the thing that someone measures. There's the input to that outcome which is unless you've built a company before, been around the trenches before, you're not really going to know like how to drive those metrics up. And I would say that's the most valuable set of experience that a venture person can bring to the table besides just writing the check and to some degree kind of getting out of the way. But if you don't want them to be fully out of the way, the most important thing is probably to have someone who actually knows what kinds of inputs are going to drive what kind of outputs.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And I mean, what made you want to, do VC? I mean, you, you've been through the Microsoft leadership program, you could probably go and do lots of different things. So what was it that post business school, you were like, I'm going to go and be a venture capitalist. And how does that link to what you said earlier about, you know, every day being different and exciting and things like that?
1: It wasn't actually post business school, it was it was the second week of business school, I got a, I got introduced by the same guy who, who said, don't don't come work for me, go, go get a proper job. Introduced me to one of the partners at Axel. Uh, Meritech is partially funded by Axel, which is why there's a link between those two firms. And said you should go meet my friend who relocated from Hall that'll go build up Axel in, in Europe. And you should go sit down with them. And that that discussion turned out to be like a multi-hour discussion. A lot of venture, by the way, and a lot of life is being in the right place at the right time. I happen to be a tech person from the tech industry on the west coast relocating to London at a time where very few people were in the industry in London. And Axel had set up its office a few years prior and was thinking about expanding on its partnership and needed to figure out the generational type stuff that they that venture firms have to do. And so the stars kind of aligned and they said, why don't, you kind of, why don't you kind of help us on something? I mean, they never said anything about a job, right? But they said, why don't you, it's great to stay in touch. Why don't you help us out on something? And I helped out on something. I must've done a good job. They asked me to help out on something else. Hopefully did a good I think I did a good job again and we we did a third time and someone kind of around the partnership said, look, like we're kind of having fun working with him. Why don't we create a job for him? So sometime in my first few months of business school, I effectively had not an official full time job because you weren't allowed to do that for visa reasons. But uh, they uh, they kind of opened up the job and and I, I basically spent most of my time uh, at that point at the Excel office, not not at business school. Uh, and I kind of went to the parties for business school. So I kind of took advantage of the social stuff at school. And then I did most of my most of my life was actually working. And, and then I think once you end up in the venture industry, it's hard to go back, right? Because you're the venture industry is so quirky, and these are partnerships, and partnerships being like small groups tend to be little bit like, you know, a little bit eccentric sometimes. Uh, And it's also really hard to transition from a business where you kind of sort of do nothing for a living other than a bunch of meetings. You know, you're not paid to produce any real output and you may be paid to think about the output. You may be paid to like chat about the output, but you don't actually have to do any real work as a venture person. Like you're just at meetings all the time. And then you're also, I think you become a trained cynic as, as a venture person, right? You're taught to basically shoot down ideas for a living a few times where you actually have to suspend disbelief and kind of write the check. But you see thousands of things over the course of a year and you keep saying no to stuff. You know, I would say if there's any other job that can, you know, where you can be a bit of a dilettante, which is a venture person and a, and a trained cynic, and you can actually be productive. Like most people who are Dillard, hunt and cynics don't actually do very much with their life. Like they become journalists or critics, but like that that's the only other job that I can think of where you where you get the same kind of stuff and journalists don't get paid very well. And they're reporting the news versus kind of making the news. You kind of want to be on the front lines of someone who's an operating person. There there were no other jobs. So when I left Axel, and I didn't leave Axel very willingly, when I left Axel, I, I looked around and I talked to a bunch of the other venture firms and it was uh it was it was really difficult to figure out like where a job was and there was no other jobs out there and because there were no other jobs out there the next best thing if you want to stay in venture You've realized you've kind of soured yourself from doing any other productive work because you've been so unproductive in this venture configuration for so long. You kind of have to stick to venture now for the rest of your life. You know, the person who kind of had connected me to Axel said was, was it's right. He was right. Like you kind of have to be a partner at these venture firms to be able to do well. And I wasn't a partner. Well, then the next best thing is to make yourself a partner and set up your own fund. And so we became a startup venture fund which I would not ever recommend to anybody, but we set up our own fund. It took 39 months to raise this silly thing. But fortunately, we, we turned out to be pretty good investors. And so we had, we had a bunch of good picks. And, and I think we've been reasonably helpful with our companies, which is why we have to stay on the boards for a long time.
2: I agree with what you've said. Actually, the bit that resonates is the, the cynicism, which I think is... In, in many ways, particularly in personal life, it's a bit of a shame, but such is life, you make sacrifices. It's interesting hearing, hearing about you talk how the sort of stars align because Axel is a later stage fund. And I think there's an interesting kind of, well, I think it's interesting how people kind of end up in whichever stage of venture investing they end up in. And I think they're quite different skill sets. I think they require quite different character traits. And so I'm interested in kind of what, what you experienced to Axel at with investing at later stage and why you felt it was actually the earlier stages and and seed stage and pre-seed, where where your strengths lay.
1: Axel is not a later stage firm. It's kind of, it's an early stage firm, but it kind of does, and it's a big firm, right? It it runs hundreds of millions of dollars. And so it has to do kind of series A. Quite frankly, we ended up in seed because we were broke. Uh, We couldn't raise an Axels type fund. And so when you have a much smaller balance sheet to actually invest out of, you kind of have to find things that are going to take small checks. One suggestion is you could just end up investing alongside of other people and writing a small token check. You know, a ten million dollar round happens and you write your hundred k check as part of the round. I don't think of that as venture, right? You're not taking a, a, you're not taking the lead position. I mean, you're kind of, you're kind of following on and kind of piggybacking, and and you're you're piggybacking off of other people who are actually doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And, and a lot of people do this, but it wasn't very interesting to me. I don't think that's an interesting job. And, and so I did the limited cash that we have. You know, we couldn't do Series A, so we wanted to focus a lot more on, on seed investing as opposed to Series A investing, and so that's what we focused on. The good news, for us is we were not sure when we set up whether we were in good at seed investing, right? Because the the benefit of being a slightly later stage investor, whether it's Series A or Series B or Series C, is you actually have data, right? There's a company out there like that built something, they have some customers that you can actually talk to. You know, when you're doing seed and pre-seed investing, you know you're borderline kind of sheet of paper with these companies. So you're really taking like a lot more risk than a later stage investor would be. And we weren't sure if we could actually pull it off. Like that was a big open question mark. I don't think the world thought that we could pull it off, which is why it took 39 months for anyone to give us money uh, and for us to get that fund off the ground. It, It turns out a lot of the stuff that you learn in the later stage investing side translate perfectly well to the seed investing side. Like the only difference I think, I, I think Axel or Index or any one of these guys could very easily do seed investing. The only thing is for them, you know, if they write a $2 million check into something, $500 million fund, you know, you need the company to be able to return the fund. You know, even if you own 20% of the business, it's gotta generate a ton of a ton of money back in, in order for you to, to, to generate the returns. You're much better off writing like 30, 40, 50s into companies. You, you get, you, you you can move the fund with much more modest multiples to, as an investment. Um, but it turns out like we were we were good at the seed stuff and, you know, eventually you get cast if you keep doing something for long enough. So we've been doing seed now for about like about eight to nine years. So we're, we're now a seed firm and, and the market's also filled in quite a bit. And to be fair, we actually really like the seed investment side. So I, I think there's a part of us that would probably want to scale up to be a series A fund at some point in the future, because I feel like if you're going to do early, it shouldn't really. And this is the beauty of being an accelerator, or Sequoia is cash is fungible right so it doesn't make a difference if you see it at the seed stage that's great you do it at the seed stage if you miss it at the seed stage you still get to do it at the series a stage right you should play across the spectrum which is which is kind of what axel does and what benchmark does and what Sequoia does you know you, you just need a, a lot of cash to be able to do that we, we just don't have the cash to, to be able to do that but we'd love to do that kind of over time it uh, just get multiple shots to go there, there comes a point where eventually the company gets big enough and the financings and evaluations look more like financings. You can build this discounted cash flow model because the company is actually delivering something and can predictably predict its revenue, right? By the time a company goes public, it better damn well be able to predict its revenue because otherwise the markets are gonna beat it up. So you've gotta really, really understand your numbers. So there comes a time where you look more like a financier than a company builder. I don't think that's for us. We're more on the company building side. We're more on the gut and instinctive side for picking investment. Versus like building a big spreadsheet to figure out if an investment is good or not. But we're still a small fund. Our, our last fund was 200 million. 200 million is a lot bigger than our first fund, which was 40 million. Like it's a big jump in size, but round sizes have gone from like half a million dollar seed rounds or maybe a million dollar seed rounds to like 10 million dollar seed rounds. And we, we still feel broke uh, every once in a while because we're still the small kid on the block.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And you had great success with both consumer and B2B. So in your view, how do you make decisions between the two and which one do you prefer? The beauty of being, I think, in Europe is we produce a hell of
1: a lot more companies today than we used to in the past, but we still don't produce companies after companies after companies in the same field that, you know, the over and over and over again, where you kind of sort of have to be a specialist in order for you to have any ability to kind of win, win those deals over. So we're, we're still a very generalist Field, right, the, the companies that become great in, in Europe are almost the exception to the rule. So I, I don't see why anyone should specialize in venture in Europe, because you want to catch as many of the big ones as you possibly can. And since you don't know where the big ones are going to come from, you might as well keep as an open mind as possible about these things. You know, the other thing about Europe is I think it's much easier to be like you don't need to be the world's smartest person to, to do venture in, in general, wherever you are. You just need a really good network and you have to know who to call which is why the operating background matters so much. So you have to know who to call so you can actually you know, pick up the phone and find out if something is really interesting or not. And, and you know, we've always left the door pretty open here about what great ideas are going to be. We don't take a thesis view. Uh, and at Excel, they have, a, they have a thesis view. Like They, they do these things called prepared minds. And I, I think a lot of this is probably more marketing than anything because it's much easier to generate the prepared mind with a little bit of hindsight. Kind of go the right way. Bessemer does a great job at actually putting these things together on thematic stuff and their website uh, has a bunch of this stuff and they write great reports. But it's much easier to put the pieces together, I think, when you actually see a little bit of this stuff. If you're doing early stage, there's no pieces to, to put together, right? So you keep a you keep a very blank slate, someone walks in the door, they explain to you why this is actually really interesting, and the light bulb kind of clicks and you write the and your job is, as a venture person is you're an allocator of capital to talent you see the talent and they have the right idea and it's the right market and you do some background checking to figure out if that's true or not true and then you write the check and you know it's not writing the check is a heck of a lot more expensive than writing the check because if the check doesn't go anywhere and it goes to zero, like you get a zero. But if the check turns out to cash in and it turns out to be one of the great companies, and we've done this at Hux and like we beat ourselves up, like we turned down UiPath, like we met them like months before most of the rest of the venture community. And it was just around inflection, maybe pre inflection. We, we talked ourselves out of it. And then talking ourselves out of it probably cost us. Somewhere between 100 million to a billion, depending on what the dilution factor would have been. And I guess it's probably closer to a billion.
2: Really expensive million dollar mistake that we would have had that we did make. Presumably you've made quite a number of investments from fund one now. What have you learned about picking founders? And are there any character traits that you've actually told yourself you want to avoid now? that perhaps previously you thought were favorable?
1: Yeah, so they're all they're all different. So our first fund made 17 investments and we took three companies public last year that were all multi-billion. I think we have a fourth, fifth and a sixth company that will get to multi-billion type status. So the typical rule of thumb in venture is like one in 20 kind of succeeds. You know, maybe if you're really good, one in 10 succeeds. Like we're way above even like top quartile norms uh, for venture. And, and the returns of the fund are kind of the reason why we went from 40 to 100 to 200. Like people now line up to give us money. It's very different in the first three years for, for holding the hat around for people. So, so we've been pretty good pickers. We're not pickers of people. We're pickers of markets. So we spend a lot of time thinking, and it, it, that's obviously someone comes in the door. We're obviously allocating capital to talent, but someone comes in through the door and the light bulb goes off that this is actually a big new market. This is something that's going to get disrupted. So for it to make this like more concrete, you know, we wrote the first check into Darktrace. Darktrace is doing something that was anomaly threat detection think of it as like a home alarm system for your house, except it's not for your house, it's for your corporate network. And instead of the alarms, like as in burglars coming in, it's like cybersecurity attacks, it like sits around. And like most alarm systems, if the alarm rings all the darn time, you kind of tune it out. And it's kind of not a very effective alarm system. And if the alarm system never rings when someone is doing something bad, then it's clearly a defective alarm system. And, And the trick for all of this is knowing when to ring the bell so that you don't get inundated with uh, alerts and and ringing the bell when it's actually really, when it really matters. that entire market category, when we looked at Darktrace, there was a name for it, it was called Security Information Enterprise Management, SIEM. The entire TAM of the SIEM market was 300 million US dollars. They've added up all of the vendors in the market, and you looked at what they've made collectively it was three hundred million dollars. And most people in venture will tell you, you know, if it doesn't have a billion dollar CAM or can't get to a billion dollar cam, it's not worth investing into. But we still wrote the check into this. And why do we do that? All the other SIEM vendors Forced you to write the rules. So it was almost like taking an alarm system and then writing down every single time the alarm should go off or when the alarm shouldn't go off, right? So, like, if the cat paces on the floor this, like at this rate, then don't bring the alarm system. That's literally the kind of rules that people would have to write. And they'd have to write like 10,000 rules in a normal company, maybe as much as like 50,000 rules. Those products are like, they're, they're kind of junk, right? Like having to maintain a rule set of 10 or 50,000 rules in a, in a modern company and keep those things updated for like all the next generation security things that are coming don't make any sense. And, and Darktrace's model was we're going to build software that figures out predictively and auto-generates the rules and ring the alarm bell when it matters. And so for us, we picked up the phone and we called a bunch of people. We called the CTO at RSA. It was like an old friend. We called the chief scientist at Cisco. Cisco just bought a big cybersecurity business, Sourcefire, for 3.4 billion. So we called a bunch of people and they said, look, if someone builds something like this, there is clearly a market for it. So it was kind of question number one. And then question number two is we're in London. Like London is not normally where you think like great cybersecurity companies come out of. Who else is working on stuff like this? Because usually when they're brand new markets, there are multiple people building things in those markets. It's not just one person like in the world who spots the market. There are multiple people who spot it. So who's the Israeli company that's building something like this? Because you know, there's, there's tons of Israeli cyber companies. Like who's the Palo Alto version of this company? And so we ended up talking to a bunch of our friends. And it turns out the number two company was Angel invested in by an old friend of mine. He'd sold his business to Citrix and was made a lot of money. And so we ended up in this like Starbucks where we had this very awkward conversation where he doesn't want to tell me too much about the one that he's invested in. I don't want to tell him too much about the one I'm looking at. We have two horses in the race, right? We don't want to have too much information sharing, but we want to know who's got the better horse, like to some degree. And so we have this awkward relationship. We were pretty confident that we had a pretty good horse uh, in in Dark Trace. And and he had a really good horse too. The single best thing that happened to Dark Trace was his company got acquired the day after it announced its product. Uh, by one of the big uh, logging companies in the world, Splunk. And, and then Splunk is not a cybersecurity company, even if it wants to be. And so that product basically died. It left Darktrace pretty much unencumbered to kind of win the market. So, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the market. And the thing about the people for us is the people... Obviously, you need someone to explain the market to you and figure this stuff out because like that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like we could never predictively figure out what these markets are, so you need someone with the vision and and the and the drive to do this. The single best characteristic we've seen, and the thing that we get worried about, is great people tend to attract other great people. So you spend a lot of time and energy thinking about you know a lot of a lot of the really interesting companies attract really great talent into the company throughout the journey of the of the and the founders who are weaker. Don't tend to attract the same kind of caliber. It's really simple, like what the what the makeup of a company is, right? There's a good idea, there's capital uh, which we provide, and then there's people. And in you know, honestly, the idea comes from day one, so. Bit of a genius moment, but that's a one-time genius moment. The capital these days is like basically free, like it's so cheap, like you can get that from anybody. So the single best thing about a company, like that's going to make a company actually work, is the people. And you could rely on just the founder being exceptional, but that's a hard bar, right? Because even if the company scales, they've got to build infrastructure inside. Even if they're going to run the leanest company in the world, they still got to attract other people. So it's largely a signal like who's going to come and join people along for the ride on that mission. That we spend a lot of time working with founders on that like and and evaluating founders on that other than the market stuff the rest of this stuff honestly like we don't know like you don't know the answers to these questions until you write the check like there's been a lot of companies like we had a company it was a mushroom leather company and these two kids they're like in their 20s like or like mid 20s they knew nothing about mushrooms like as in they had no scientific background on mushrooms and then no scientific background on leather or they didn't come from the leather industry but they had studied everything that there was to study about the mushroom leather industry. And they'd recruited five or six people who were the world's experts in the field to come and join them on this before a company was even formed. They, didn't, they hadn't even incorporated. And they needed half a million quid to kind of get going. And so we had an internal discussion uh, and we weren't really sure uh, about what we wanted to do. There was a big debate around the table and we wrote the check, the half a million check. And six months later, they're, they're off to the races we're gonna announce a commercial product pretty
2: soon. It's very interesting. I think particularly on what you said around Dark Trace on your reference calls with Cisco and others, where they said if they can do this, it will be amazing is I think a key signal for particularly investing in deep tech. Because you're speaking to people, the reference customers are people who who often don't know what is possible with the latest technology. You know, they're working at incumbents, they're often not aware. And if they're just told about something that could exist based on new technology and they say, if this is possible and we don't believe it is, it will be amazing and we'll pay for it. That's something that we've, we've heard on a number of reference calls as well. And if you then believe that the founders are amazing and that if anyone can put it off, then they can, then that's a great reason to go ahead with an investment.
1: I think, I mean, a lot of venture, like I said, is you're, you're cynical, but you kind of have to know when to suspend disbelief. To write the check, and you know the the mushroom leather one is a, is one, and we're really bullish on this one right now. But like you kind of had to believe these 24, 25 year old kids who didn't come from the scientific background could actually pull this thing off. And you you don't really know if they're going to be able to pull it off unless unless you write the check. And so sometimes you have to write the check. Consumer businesses are much easier, right? Because you can see the traction, you can see the cohort retention. And, and then the question is like, is it going to scale up to be really large or is it going to peter out and plateau at some point? But you know, there's a lot of data, right? It's much easier to be a venture investor sometimes with data. But a lot of this venture business is just knowing like when to pull the trigger and write the check when you see brilliance kind of coming through the room that's what makes a job like incredibly fun. Like that's your very first question. Like that, I I can't think of a better job in many ways, like when you get to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned that you're backing markets. So this is probably a, might be a fairly quick answer, but do you ever back multiple horses in the same market? And then as an add-on to that, you've just obviously told us about one deal, but is there another deal that you've done in the last six months that you can, Share and explain why you invested,
1: yeah we don 't back multiple horses i mean it's it 's too awkward right now we 're a small firm we 're four people. You could maybe put a Chinese wall together right to separate like one company from the other, but it, it's almost impossible. Sometimes companies end up going in the same space, and then you've got a little bit of competition. But like would we knowingly invest in two companies at the same time? I, I, mean, I think the founders would shoot us like if they knew that. so like you kind of have to pack the one. you gotta you gotta pick, right. I mean, and, and this is what makes it really interesting. Sometimes in these brand new markets, there're like a handful of companies that are all doing something kind of conceptually similar but maybe a little bit different. And you don't really know which is the one to write the check to. And one of the beauties of being a seed fund is we cannot do this. Like, because if we don't write the check then and there, we don't get another shot, right? Whereas if you're a late stage investor, you'd be like, yeah, you know what? I don't really know, right? There's not enough evidence just yet. There are two that are really interesting, or three that are really interesting. I'll just take a wait and see approach and. You know, the beauty of being a seed fund is you cannot take away into your approach because you have to write the check or you miss it. Uh, and so you have to train yourself to be really good about picking the one that you think is going to work and, and not be so scared of what happens if you don't pick the right one. We try and pick the right one kind of from day one. And by the way, we don't get it right all the time. We get it wrong probably uh, more times than right. But the few times that we do get it right, they really pay off for us as a, as a firm.
2: Yeah, I think it's one of the most important things in venture is to be comfortable with getting it wrong. Because if you're not comfortable with that, you're going to stop taking risk and and lose your nerve. I wonder if you've seen variation in how seed funds select investments. And I wonder whether you've seen people you think, why the hell are they doing it like that? Or or people who think, okay, I really like how they're thinking about that. And whether you've kind of learned and adapted the way you think about investing as a result of seeing, seeing what's around you.
1: We've had a lot of good insights from other people. So Mike Maples, who runs Floodgate, sat me down a few years after we'd started the first fund. And one of the problems in a seed fund is you have very limited capital. So you can't write the next check as easily as you can the first check. And you certainly can't write the check after that as easily. And so you know these, these extra checks are called reserves. And you know, you just don't have very much in the way of reserves and, and out of a small fund. At Axel, we used to allocate our reserves kind of against each company at the time that we made the decision. So you know, you kind of leave the money behind for every single company so they can draw upon it as a future round. And it was this more brittle way of doing it. Mike Floodgate, you know, thinks about this as offensive reserves and defensive reserves. They take all their reserves together, they blend it into a pool, and they take two thirds of that and they try and double down on the winning investments. So if you have early success in the fund, you want to take as much of the remaining money in the fund that you've kind of earmarked for future rounds, and you want to plow it down on the on the winning company. The the danger to this, by the way, is your first winning company may not be the ultimate winning company. So there's there's a lot of nuance. But but this idea of like offensive versus defensive reserves was a brand new idea. I wouldn't have gotten if if my cat sat me down and kind of explained it to me. And we we've now adopted it. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to firms out on the West Coast who are, you know, to be fair, much more seasoned investors than people in Europe. to to figure out what best practices kind of really look like and best practices keep changing right because the world keeps changing and the way venture is working is also very dynamic we're just going through a lot of change Uh, but we compare notes all the time there is a hoxton way like we are still a very uh, a 1970s style venture person like we take a limited amount of beds we're very passive investors. Like we're not like control investors at all. Like, you know, we don't want to run companies, but we're very engaged with our companies. Like we're active board directors. Like, you know, we believe that that stuff matters. We double down on our winners. Like we're not like an SPV, like we're not doing party rounds. We're not doing SPV stuff, we're not passive. Like we're old school venture uh, in that sense. Like we're not very focused on our brand. Like we don't have a head of platform. We don't really give a damn about that stuff. We don't care about like a head of talent, like, you know, what we care about is just picking really interesting companies and being on the journey with them and making sure they actually turn out to be to be really big companies. That is probably less contemporary these days because it's a little old fashioned. But we think that's the way you get really high returns in this business. And then the people who kind of align with us take money from us and people who don't like, don't. But I think people who generally take money from us, have a view that they want us on the cap table. Like they want us around the table for these kinds of discussions and all of our deal flow comes inbound. So we run an old school model in a very new wave industry.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting how resilient the traditional venture model has has remained to you know, standard fee structure, exactly as you talk about your high conviction bets in a relatively small number of companies. Even the last year or two, I think we've seen a lot of change emerging, but I wonder what you're excited about over the next 10 years. What are some trends in VC rather than you know what sectors are you excited about? What are some trends happening to the venture industry that you're excited about and that you think are important to take note of? Yeah, I mean, so this idea of like angels being able to set up
1: Kind of syndicates or funds. I mean, we struggled for like three years, right, to raise $40 million like those. You can raise $40 million as a syndicate today on platforms that exist, like Angel is. Like, and their are founders who don't want me on the board. They want an experienced angel investor who was an operator before, who has a lot of domain experience, but the problem that they're solving on, on the board, right? The world is changing very rapidly in venture. And we have friends who've raised hundreds of millions on just SPVs alone doing these kinds of deals and been very, very successful investors. You're getting this massive defragmentation in venture where the power used to be in a very small set of firms. You know, it kind of expanded out as some of the people in those firms went off to go raise other funds. Just the amount of wealth that's been created in tech now and the amount of knowledge that's in tech is now, means it's really distributed. And so that's, a, that's the biggest, I think, change. And, you know, Tiger, et cetera, there's just a bunch of new entrants. just money becomes very fungible. And the question is, like, if you're trying to build a tier one type firm, like, how do you build a team around all this stuff so that you can stay, you know, close to the top? Because it, it, it gets increasingly harder, I think, to be at the top uh, in, in, that, in that kind of world.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's like a critical nuance that people often miss and certainly the media doesn't often report on, which is that there's been an explosion of follower money. And and people think, OK, well, the number of venture funds has tripled. I mean, I'm plucking that number out of the sky. But what people don't think about is actually how many of those new investors are conviction investors who are making the initial decision to lead an investment round. And, and I don't know the numbers, but my suspicion is that that number hasn't increased by nearly the amount that the total number of venture funds has, has grown by. Because I think there's just there are now so many more pots of follower money who are probably in some way value add, whether it's just through network or specific skills, who once someone who is considered to be a good stock picker, has made a decision on a company, that they'll come in behind and pick your value adds to pin onto your round. Um, and so I think that being kind of an interesting nuance that I've seen, I think people sometimes ignore. But there are a ton
1: of seed firms now that are in the market that just weren't there before. Like seed funds are now a thing, right? There used to not be a seed funds as a thing. And there are lots of people who are doing syndicates. And, and, and so there's just a lot more money in this industry than there ever was. And I, I wonder how much it will stay around. Like some of it's going to go away like when, when the market goes into more recessionary type markets. There's always a pullback. And then I wonder how much of it stays around. But I, I do think that we're getting a much more decentralized, distributed world in, in, in venture. And there are a handful of firms that can kind of still command their top spot because it's a reverse inquiry business for them. But trying to build a reverse inquiry business for everyone else is going to be pretty, it's going to be just
0: much more challenging. Yeah, it's really interesting. This sort of a bit of a shake up of who's going to be where in the market. So, Saying we also like to get to know about you as the person as well as understanding your business and what you've done. So maybe you could explain a bit about what kind of drives you within your career. I mean, do you have like a career mission statement or anything as formal as that or like what what's really driving you? To do the best work you can.
1: I, mean, I always came from a culture where you know you you were kind of scrappy and, and you worked really hard to prove to the world that you were good. I, I grew up in in New York. Uh, I grew up like a block away from the projects, which would be like kind of the council flat equivalent. There are a bunch of people who told me like I'm surprised you didn't grow up rich because that's what we thought you. But I, I didn't. I grew up pretty like not even modest, like pretty pretty reasonably poor, and I worked hard. I went to a great school in in New York, which is a state school, like a public school, a government school, uh, which you know was a feeder school for a lot of the Ivy Leagues. It was full of Type A people. Uh, who drove me nuts. Uh, and so I made this very conscious decision of trying to stay as far away from them as possible. Uh, and I went to school on the West Coast, which at the time was known but not known the way it is today, which is Stanford. There were very few people in my high school, everyone went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, etc. No one went to Stanford, there were six of us out of the 700 person plus class that went to Stanford. I went to Stanford, did well. You know, I think the one thing, part of what drives people, there's a bit of a chip on the shoulder syndrome, like you know there's something to prove. I think we've me we have been pretty underrated for a lot of my career. and and there's something to be there's something to prove, right, to prove to the world that you're undeservedly underrated, right? So I think when I left Axel, like I would have guessed that I should have been able to get a job at any other venture fund because I was pretty good at what I did. That was not the case. And that put a chip on the shoulder to kind of form Hoxton. You know, Hoxton's first fund is probably one of the best team funds in Europe. It's still hard to raise fund to give you even more of a chip on your shoulder, uh, to prove to the world that the first fund, like we have one investor sit us down and say, you know, you were just lucky. that's like complete BS, right? Like you can be lucky once when you have a unicorn company and this is like unicorns, like before everything got printed into unicorns, which is kind of the state of play the last year, but like have one successful company out of a seed fund and have two successful companies out of a seed fund and have three successful companies out of a seed fund that all kind of go public. Like you could attribute it to luck, but at some point, maybe, maybe just maybe there might be an element of skill to this. So having that chip on the shoulder kind of matters, right? Not for I've given up at this point. I'll never submit an application to the Midas list again because we submitted Midas list things and we know some of our peers and we know the returns of our peers and we know our returns are higher, but we've never made the cut at the Midas list. And, you know, the world just kind of underrates us. It's the world's decision. But it just makes you even more hungry to actually prove to the world that the world is fundamentally wrong on this stuff. That stuff can be double edged, like when it's really bad, but, but it can also be a really positive quality, right? When you harness it correctly. And I think that is sadly like one of the qualities that's on this shop. Like we're very, very driven to prove to the world that they have the wrong idea about us.
2: I would love to do a survey of a random group of 1,000 people in the UK and ask the question, have you ever felt underestimated? And then try and correlate that to success. Because, I, yeah, I think that'd be very interesting. Hussein, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the, the podcast. We've covered a huge amount. We've got lots of insight around selecting founders. Views on venture, what people are doing well, what people are doing badly, all sorts. It's been a real pleasure. But we always like to finish the podcast with asking our guests who they would invite to a business dinner. Who would you invite? They can be dead or alive.
1: I'm, I'm in a fasting month right now. I'm, I'm a Muslim. I, I, I you know, fast and pray. And I, I'd be really curious to get Adam... Moses, like Abraham, Muhammad, Jesus, all at a table, just to see how much divergence there is, because there shouldn't be any divergence, right? If, if you're Muslim, that's kind of what you believe. Uh, it's all kind of the same. I mean, it's less business, but there's so much impact that religion's had on the world, good and bad. And I'd be really curious to see like what the views are to actually get all the people on the same route.
2: That'd uh, be absolutely fascinating. I'd love to join. So, yeah, send me an invite. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's been great having you on the show, Hussein. Thank, thanks so much. And um, stay in touch.
0: Sounds good. Thanks, guys. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media